Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, now... We've not done a specific show on COVID for a little while. Did that smack of slight complacency, perhaps? Perhaps we should have talked about this a little bit earlier. The reason we're doing the show today, or, or the, the kind of the hock, I suppose, is the immediate situation in India, which is being at the moment devastated by a second wave of COVID-19, and a variant, which I'll explain, what I mean by this, under investigation, for those who don't know what it means, which has been identified. Now, let's just have a quick summary before, and I should explain, I've got, as ever, some absolutely fantastic guests today, uh, a brilliant journalist live from New Delhi, who will tell us exactly what's going on uh, on the ground. And we're also joined by two really fantastic experts who will explain, and, edu- and, and this will be a very educational experience for me as well as everybody else to to have good sober analysis of exactly what's happening what the threat is um, now in india there was around 235,000 new cases reported in a 24 hour period 14 and a half million cases altogether uh, in the second biggest country on earth second only to the united states delhi is reporting already hospital bed uh, shortages now the new strain let's just have a quick and we've got experts to talk about this, don't worry, but a new strain reported in India. It's B1617. And the reason it has caused some alarm is there are two mutations on it which could make it, could, and it's very important I emphasize could here, make it spread faster and potentially evade the body's immune system. Now, how much that's fueling the second wave in India is not actually altogether clear. Now, we say variant under investigation because it's not yet, and it may not end up be, a variant of concern. Now, we've all heard, we've got used to hearing about variant of concern because of South Africa and Brazil. So scientists are trying to just establish exactly how serious this strain is. Now, as you may well know, dozens of cases of this particular strain have now been identified uh, here in the UK, and they are going up. Now, India is not on the red list of travel. It's not on the red travel list, which I'm sure we're all aware of, uh, and the restrictions that come to it. More worryingly, Boris Johnson, well, not more worryingly, I think revealingly, sorry, is what I should have said. Our Prime Minister Boris Johnson is due to go to India uh, himself uh, to discuss a trade deal with India, which may well explain why India is not on the red list, not for public health reasons, but for economic reasons, because Boris Johnson is fearful of the European Union stealing a march on Britain when it comes to trade negotiations uh, with India. Now, as I've said, we've always got variants from Brazil and South Africa here. That's led to surge testing in certain London boroughs. Globally, and I think it's worth pointing this out, because again, in Britain, because of the success of the vaccination program. And it must be said, belatedly, 
one of the most severe lockdowns uh, in the Western world. And it was obviously imposed belatedly after cases and deaths were allowed to spiral out of control in December and January with catastrophic human consequences. Um, I think we've kind of grown there's some, something of complacency about the situation. There is a sense of the vaccine is now here. The vaccines are now here. Um, you know, this is kind of like the end of the world of World War Two. Where in, you know, the, the the soldiers are now fighting their way through through France, as it were. You know, this is the end game. But unfortunately, the and beyond unfortunately, the official death toll has now actually surpassed three million. And what I think is disturbing on a global level is official daily deaths fell from a peak of over fourteen thousand. So over fourteen thousand people a day officially were dying in January. That fell quite steeply, actually, in March to over just over 8,000 people dying a day. Obviously, horrendous figures by any definition that obviously welcome fall. But they've now climbed up globally, official figures, to approaching 12,000 a day, and they're going up. And in Brazil, in particular, over around 3,000 people now are dying a day officially. Now, I, I think those official death tolls do need something of a health warning. Um, I'm thinking of, just to give two striking examples, South Africa and Egypt. And in both those countries, reported deaths are much, much lower than excess deaths. And excess deaths are the number of deaths uh, which are happening above a five-year average. And at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, scientists, as well as our own Prime Minister Boris Johnson, said that excess deaths were the most reliable indicator. And in this country, there were around 126, 125,000 uh, excess deaths um, reported. So globally, we, of course, we don't know how many people have died from a terrible illness, but it's almost certainly likely to be substantially higher than 3 million. So what we're talking about today is how serious is the situation in India? How serious is the strain? Is Britain really out of the woods? Uh, look, we all wanted to get out of this nightmare. Uh, it's a sunny day today, relatively speaking, a little bit nippy, but people have been cooped up for over a year to varying degrees. It's been a huge sacrifice people have made. People have suffered horribly, obviously, in terms of the loss of life. Many of you, myself included, have lost relatives. Uh, during this pandemic, uh, there are people suffering from long COVID, and then there are the economic effects and the mental effects and the economic and the social impact. This is, of course, the worst crisis since the war. So we all wanted to get out of this, but we do need to be clear just how serious is the situation. Does this pose a threat here in Britain? And obviously, we'll talk about the situation specifically in India, because all lives, um, you know, British lives do not matter more than those uh, in India. So we will talk about this in a sober way. Now, that's quite enough for me. I'm now going to bring in our first guest, who we're very honoured to have live from New Delhi, Sanya Faruqi, who hosts the Sanya Show, also has written for many, many publications, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Times, CNN, India Express, and so on. Firstly, Sanya, it's a real honour to have you. So uh, hello. Thank you, Orvin. Good to be on your show today. Thank you for Great. inviting me. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so just firstly, just could you set the scene? How serious is the situation in India right now? It's bad. It's very bad. The situation in India this time, um, we were expecting that we would have a second wave coming in, but uh, we did not anticipate that it would be the way it has been, um, you know, with the, with the healthcare facilities collapsing. We have run out of oxygen cylinders. We've run out of ventilators. Uh, there are no beds available in hospitals. There are 
patients dying outside hospitals, begging on social media. We had a journalist yesterday, which was really heartbreaking. You know, the last tweet he tweeted was that he needed oxygen cylinder and his oxygen level had gone down to 31. Um, so yeah, there are horrible stories. Uh, what's worse is that uh, the citizens in the country are very disappointed with the way the government has been responding or more or less handling the second wave in the country. We are seeing so many public uh, you know, gatherings, there are religious gatherings, there are elections going on. So the focus, which should have been on handling the second wave, unfortunately, is not happening. And uh, what we are seeing is an absolute collapse. And um, yeah, it's, it's not a very uh, good situation this time. What's the situation with the healthcare system? And just anecdotally, I know you've been personally affected by COVID-19. So what are your own experiences in terms of people obviously getting this, this terrible illness? So um, past couple of months, what we saw was that people did take it very lightly. They were going out, restaurants were open, businesses were working, offices were open. Despite uh, you know being asked to wear masks, there was very little social distancing that was being maintained. When in January and February we did find out that there are various variants that are coming up, and uh, you know the cases are spiking even in Maharashtra. And earlier in March, we saw the numbers going up. It should have been controlled from that time onwards, but it wasn't. And um, so you know people have been all out and about and. Uh, from my personal experience in the last two weeks, I've had over 10 to 15 family members in New Delhi who are all infected. We are, you know, struggling to get beds for them. We, it's very difficult to find, um, you know, uh, even hospitals that will send somebody to do uh, COVID testing. Even that's become a challenge. And uh, it's, it's, what. Well, the way I feel personally, I'm not saying this at a personal level, I feel very abandoned when we are in the middle of a pandemic like this because the healthcare also is helpless. They have nothing to do. They can't help because they have run out of facilities. They have no ventilators. They themselves don't have access to healthcare uh, facilities. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a horrible situation here. I mean, in terms of the government strategy, how do you sum it up? And how much is there anger against Modi's government? Obviously, it wasn't that long ago they ran a, they won a, a very substantial election victory. But what, what, how would you sum up the government strategy? And is there any mounting public anger or concern about the approach? No, there's a lot of anger. We are all wondering what the government strategy is. Considering uh, the top leaders of the country are right now busy campaigning, busy with political rallies, there are crowds gathering over there. The kind of messaging that is being sent, first of all, is very misleading. People should not be out. People should be maintaining social distancing. People should be wearing masks. They should be in, uh, you know, home quarantine. That messaging in itself is so uh, misleading. Secondly, if you go outside the hospital, everyone is asking, what is the government doing? How are they going to save us? How are they going to protect us? And um, whatever little action that we've seen in the past two days, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi had a meeting yesterday, and he's going to be having another meeting today to discuss the situation in Varanasi, which is his constituency. But even that, it's too little too late. We have seen a surge in the number of cases, the number of deaths. We are almost 200 thousand cases in India. And at this point, we should be in a state of emergency. There should be 
uh, monitoring, there should be the focus on uh, investing in public health care, but none of that is happening. And uh, everybody is, at the moment, everyone, even those who have voted for the BJP, who have supported the BJP, even they are wondering and asking, what is the government doing? And because it's impacting every single citizen in the country right now. Um, how much public discussion is there about the new strain, which is obviously a strain under investigation rather than of concern at the moment, but how much public discussion is there about that in India? And also, I'm wondering, and you might not have any views on it, but I'm interested in terms of uh, Boris Johnson, because obviously, as you know, with British uh, discourse, it can often be very insular. What about Britain applied to almost everything? But Boris Johnson is due to go to India on a trade trip. India hasn't been put on the on the red list following the uh, obviously the discovery of the of the new strain in India. So I'm just wondering about what's what the public discussion about the new strain, but also what are your thoughts about what's what's going on there in terms of trade and COVID nineteen? Yeah, see, in terms of uh, the new strain, I don't think people understand what exactly the double mutation or what is really causing this aggressive uh, second wave that's happening in India. People are aware that there is a UK strain, there is a South Africa strain, there is um, the new India strain. But again, for the public, unless and until you don't have the leadership explaining that to them and explaining how dangerous it is, why it's important to not be, um, you know, surrounding yourself in crowded environment, uh, you know, not uh, stepping out without a mask, people are not going to take it seriously. And I think that's what's happened in India because the messaging from the top down has been, you know, taking it for granted, more or less. And in terms of uh, the red list, I am nobody to, uh, you know, comment on what the government and what United Kingdom needs to do. But uh, if any country that has been in a state of lockdown and it has been more or less preventing the spread of virus. They should contemplate uh, how they can prevent further escalation in the future because the virus is not leaving us. It's not going to leave India. It's not going to leave the United Kingdom. It's not going to leave any other part of the world unless and until we don't have uh, you know, full vaccination and unless and until we don't have time uh, to really handle and get rid of this pandemic, which I don't think is going to get over in the next two, three years. So yeah, everyone needs to be mindful of uh, their actions and uh, including from India. India should be uh, taking a very responsible step towards curbing and towards focusing on public health care if in the future it really wants to succeed economically or uh, continue to be a um, democracy that you know has set an example last year in whatever little way that we managed to do in curbing the uh, you know, spread of virus. And, and finally, uh, you know, India has the fourth highest death toll on the face of the earth, over 177,000 people officially. And again, these official death tolls have, have died. That's different from excess deaths, of course, which are, uh, which will include those deaths that haven't been reported necessarily as COVID-19. Um, and without you know, being too macabre, when you see a surge in cases of this level, given the lagging nature of COVID-19 and how long it takes, often from people being diagnosed with COVID-19 to hospitalisation and for those who die, death, um, it suggests in the coming weeks a very difficult situation in India, even if now all of a sudden miraculously 
those cases were brought back under control. So, I mean, what's your fear? What's the general, is there a general sense of fear at what, what is going to happen in the, in, in the coming weeks? And what kind of stories are you hearing? Yeah, we are very worried because, um, again, for the past two weeks, the kind of mass gatherings and political rallies that have taken place, there will be uh, communities spreading. There will be people who will be traveling back from those cities and from those events. And they could be potentially carrying virus and they will be spreading it around. So the next couple of weeks is very crucial for how India deals with it. In terms of uh, right from the time when you get infected, the biggest fear is if your oxygen level drops, how are you going to get access to a cylinder? How are you going to get access to a hospital bed? How are you going to get access uh, even to an ambulance? Um, from there till if you do manage to survive, how do you prevent it from spreading further or getting infected further, considering there was a lapse during uh, the last couple of months when everybody was stepping out and taking it very lightly. Um, now we're also seeing the crematoriums not able to handle the dead bodies that are coming their way. They are collapsing. Even the graveyards are not able to bury people. It's right from the beginning till the end, including the death, there is no dignity, there is no, um, the helplessness is dire. And, you know, the next couple of months, unless and until the government really decides to leave all activities and really focus on public health and on curbing and on keeping the citizens of India safe and alive, it's going to be a very horrible situation. We've already surpassed Brazil, we are close to the United States. Unlike United States, we are not able to even fulfill the vaccination drive. We are running out of vaccines. So it's also very frightening in that way. Owen? Sanya, I really, really appreciate that. And do do stay safe. Um, and all my all our love and solidarity over there. Uh, so thank you. No, thank you for having me on the show and for um, you know focusing on India because it is important to talk about what's happening over here. Very much so. And and you were so clear and eloquent. So we really, really appreciate that. So thank you, Sanya. Take care. And I'll you. meet you soon. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye. Brilliant, but very, very disturbing stuff about what's happening in India. And we'll talk uh, now in terms of just what the situation is, including regarding our own country. It does feel a little bit, I know it kind of feels a bit kind of like, come on, it's bad enough on its own terms in India without uh, putting a British prism on it. But people do want to know what this potentially means for what's happening here in Britain, people, there's a general sense of we're out of the worst of it. The only way now is a relaxation of lockdown ending in June, of course, supposedly according to the timetable with the virtual relaxation of all restrictions in this country. Is that actually going to happen? Um, for those, again, who are live, do with your super chats, I will read out everyone at the end who submits via super chat. So do keep it coming and click through to YouTube if you're watching live. So let's bring in our two fantastic uh, experts, uh, DT Gurdasani, who you will, many of you will know because we've had her on the show before and she was absolutely brilliant and got rave uh, comments uh, from Queen Mary University and Kit Yates, uh, a really brilliant expert who's uh, at the University uh, of Bath. Hello, both of you, how are you doing? Well, <laughs> good to see you. Right. Well, let's just start with you, DT, because I know for a start, you you yourself have family in India. So, I mean, firstly, just from uh, it'd be nice to have, I suppose, your own personal perspective, given given your own family situation. And how grave do you think the situation is in India? 
I mean, frankly, it's quite scary. Uh, so my parents live in India and they've been in lockdown largely since last March. And the situation now is definitely really concerning because, I mean, I have relatives who are sick with COVID who are monitoring their oxygen daily to see if they need to go in hospital. There's real concerns about whether there is capacity in hospitals and whether hospitals will take them if they're ill. You know, I've had family members who've been admitted to ICU during this pandemic who thankfully survived. Um, but I think the situation is quite terrifying for people there right now. Uh, and there's very little um, idea as to what this means longer term and, 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 you know, what are the measures that will be taken or necessary to contain it. In terms of the new variant, um, and I'll bring you a kit as well just to, to ask about this, but in terms of the new variants, how serious do you think these new variants are? We don't, I mean, in terms of the Indian variant, the variant identified in India, we don't still under investigation but what are your initial thoughts uh, so it's been linked to uh the surge of cases that we're seeing in india so we need to essentially look at the trajectory of cases in india and within the last month the number of cases has gone from about from about twenty thousand a day to over two hundred thousand a day so that's a tenfold increase um and while we don't know if the variant is directly responsible what we know about the variant is really concerning from the data we have from the laboratory so one of the mutations it has is at the same position as the so-called south african manaus variant the same uh, position that's been associated with escape from immune responses and uh, vaccines. And another mutation that's been seen in California as well, that's been associated with increased transmissibility, virus replication, and also escape from immunity and possibly vaccines. So while we don't have population level data to say this is actually causing this, what we know from the laboratory is very concerning. And Kit, uh, although Kit, you're on mute, by the way, if you can unmute yourself to re reappear, then that's fine. Uh, there you are, you're back. Yeah, so in terms of, I mean, I said at the beginning, I just gave some basic statistics about the global situation, which is, was getting better and is now definitely going in the wrong direction. What's your thoughts about the role of, of the new variants and all of this and how worried do you think we should be here? I think from yeah it's 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 very true that we put a very uk perspective on on everything and it's not it's natural because we're in the uk i think it's it's sunny here outside uh you know cases are low and i think everyone's thinking well you know it's all it's all over by the shouting basically it's all it's all good and and personally i'm torn between both optimism and pessimism so the vaccine rollout is going really well you know potentially we're going to have everyone offered their first dose by early july maybe even sooner vaccines are working better than we thought they would they're preventing illness but they're also reducing transmission cases have dropped quickly because of lockdown and because of vaccines we're, we're you know in some places the lowest cases we've seen since september so you know lockdown has worked better than expected because we were worried in fact with the new b117 you know uk identified variant that we wouldn't be able to bring the reproduction number below one even with schools closed and we are opening up slowly, which is to some degree giving us a, a way of measuring the impact of each each stage of the opening up. The, the causes for pessimism for me, where I'm a little bit more concerned, are that we're relying on vaccines to do an awful lot of the work. We've put all of our eggs in the, in the vaccine basket. And so from my point of view, we need to do everything we can to make sure that that, that, um, that strategy doesn't fail and obviously one serious concern which could make it fail is if we either home grow our own or import a, a, a variant which can evade either existing natural immunity or vaccine mediated immunity and that's the real worry for me is that you know these these variants that we are not controlling coming into the country could undermine all of the hard work that we've been doing 
I mean, in terms of the so-called red list, I mean, I, I mean, what's frustrating? Well, there are many things frustrating uh, about the government's about the situation here in this country. But the, the, the way the government, because of the thankful, I mean, you know, incredible NHS rollout um, of the vaccines, which we should be extremely grateful for. Uh, there's been, you know, a, a a lack of proper scrutiny and debate about just how catastrophic, of course, the government's handling of COVID-19 was. We have one of the worst death rates and death tolls uh, on the face of the earth and one of the worst economic consequences, because, of course, a public health crisis is an economic crisis. The threat to the economy is the virus, not the the, the measures that have to be taken to, to contain the virus. And one of the multiple failures, along with not locking down quick enough, prematurely reopening, not sorting out test and trace, and all the other things which we've discussed at length on this show, um, has been the failure to stop uh, vi- the virus and new strains from coming into the country. So what on earth do you think is going on? I mean, I shouldn't laugh because it's horrendous, but with the failure to put India on the red travel list, in short, allowing a, a a worrying strain, which is under investigation, to come into this country. What do you think is going on and, and what are your thoughts? So I think the failure goes even beyond that. Um, so Sage, I think, advised either in December or in January that unless we had comprehensive border restrictions across all countries, uh, we would definitely import new variants of concern. And uh, I think Chris Whitty himself during one of the briefings said it was inevitable that we would import these variants. And the only reason it was inevitable was that we didn't have a policy to prevent them coming in. Uh, and I think scientists warned consistently, including in Defense Sage, that a red list policy wasn't sufficient. And you just have to look at what's happened to look at that. So for example, the Indian variant was in the UK in February before we knew it was a variant of concern, which is essentially what we're saying. The new variants that are arising in different parts of the world that we don't even know about, and even the existing variants are now widespread across the world. So it's not sufficient to have a red list. What we need is a comprehensive quarantine, managed quarantine, policy for 14 days from all regions coming in, like Australia and New Zealand have done. And the evidence tells us that that works because there are so many countries that have prevented these new variants coming in using uh, these comprehensive policies. And other countries like in Europe and UK that haven't had those policies have imported all these variants. And we're seeing the huge impact of that across Europe right now because of the UK variant that's now been exported across the globe. so this is very much this very much was not inevitable but it was entirely expected given our policy and every single variant of concern now is within the uk and not only are they within the uk they're growing within our community one of the reasons the government wasn't concerned about importing variants was that they suggested that we have some of the best surveillance systems in the world and we'd be able to contain them once they entered the country that's not happened. Despite huge efforts at search testing, we see week on week rises of the so-called South Africa variant, the Manaus variant, and the India variant. Thankfully, they're still in the minority, but prevention was definitely the best strategy here, rather than desperately trying to firefight them now that they're here. I mean, Kit, I mean, what's your sense? I mean, one of the reasons I, you know, I'm holding this pen, which I just slightly tempted to thrust in my face. I won't, don't worry. But in frustration, is that? One of the reasons, it seems to me, from the, what we can glean from the media that they haven't put it on the red list is Boris Johnson is worried about being upstaged when it comes to trade negotiations with India. And that is reflective of a catastrophic strategy from the very beginning, which was to put economic interests ahead of public health, when obviously, if you allow a public health crisis 
to spiral out of control, you then end up with the worst economic consequences. It's just more, it's just Groundhog Day all over again. When will they ever learn? Apparently never. So what's your thoughts on the whole border situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen that the countries that have managed their public health crisis the best are the countries that have done best economically as well. It's sort, it's sort of a no-brainer. It shouldn't have to be explained by this point. In terms of in terms of the the red list, if you're serious about limiting the importation of new variants, then managed isolation is is the only way to go. You know, Sage has warned repeatedly that um, you know if you if you don't do complete preemptive border control or closure or mandatory quarantine of visitors when they arrive, then uh, and you know putting them in, in, in government designated facilities uh, for 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 periods uh, of quarantine. Uh, irrespective of what their test history is, whether they've had a, t- a negative test before they come in or not, then you're not going to be able to fully prevent the importation of, of new cases and new variants. Um, you know, the UK took a year to introduce any form of managed isolation. Even now, it's only a relatively small number of countries uh, for, for arrivals from which are required to, to get, undergo managed isolation. India is not on the red list, despite being... Uh, having extremely high levels of cases we're talking about 150,000 cases a day for at least the last three weeks and of course variants which are potentially going to undermine uh, our our vaccine program so um, you know we we also have things like uh, people who are exempt from doing these this managed isolation for certain reasons Um, you know you you could argue that there's there's really no point in having a red list at all if, if countries only go on the red list after variants have arrived in the country what's what's the point in doing that um you know when it comes to border control there isn't really any room for half measures to me it seems like this is playing politics with again with our with our health system so yeah i think really it should be an, it should be all or, or nothing because we're going to start importing variants if we don't try to make sure that everyone that comes into the country has to undergo managed isolation Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, as everyone knows, we have a timetable uh, or different timetables. Again, I've now uh, tried to be self-aware about an excessive British focus. And now I'm, now I'm just presuming everyone's English, which they're obviously not. Uh, but here in England, uh, where I currently am, um, stage three, which is no earlier than the 17th of May, means uh, in theory, if all goes to plan, on the 17th of May, people can meet in groups of up to 30 outdoors. 
no doubt lots of hedonistic parties, people, a lot of pent-up energy over the last year. Six people or two households can meet indoors. Domestic overnight stays allowed with people not in your household or bubble. Pubs, restaurants, and so on can allow people to sit indoors, which I think many are welcome, would, uh, will welcome because those of us who try to have a pint outside realise it gets quite cold quite quickly in April. Um, weddings, up to 30 people. Uh, remaining outdoor entertainment, theatres, cinemas can open. Indoor entertainment, museums, theatres, cinemas and so on. Children's play areas, hotel. You know, those are the general things that people are expecting. And then uh, in June, it's hoped all legal limits and social contact will be removed. And that, and and you know, young people are particularly thinking they can go out with their mates and start dancing in clubs again. So I suppose my question is, DJ, I mean, do you think that roadmap is going to be kept to? From those of us who've been very critical of the government's response, the timetable seemed quite a, a sensible departure from their previous catastrophic approach in that it was pragmatic, in that it was every five weeks and it was only, wasn't set in stone, it was based on the data, it was based on various tests. So if it is, I mean, do you think the timetable has been quite sensible? And do you think we're, we're going to keep to it given our vaccinations? Or do you think the new variants and so on could upend it? So the first thing I want to say about the roadmap is that the purpose of the roadmap was not pandemic control. So if you look at the tests, the tests were not based on case numbers and our rates. The only aim of the roadmap uh, in terms of cases was that we remain under NHS capacity. So as long as the NHS doesn't break, we're okay. And we know the devastation we can have even remaining just under NHS capacity because that's what essentially led us to over 150,000 deaths over the past year. Now, in terms of following dates, um, uh, sorry, data and not dates. I, I don't think we have been following the data because uh, if we just look at what's happened since we started reopening, one of the things that became very clear very early on that experts were advising about was that we saw an increase in cases among school-age children. So looking at the Office for National Statistics data, just in the few weeks that schools were open prior to Easter, which wasn't for long, we saw rises among school-age children who had the highest positivity among all age groups just before Easter break. We saw this fall during Easter break that again sort of captures the fact that children are clearly being infected in schools and transmitting because we saw the R rate rise while schools were open and then drop again during Easter break. So looking at all that, you know, a government that was following the data would definitely think we need to preempt this because there are simple measures we can take that are in line with recommendations and what other countries are doing to prevent this happening, uh, particularly in the light of all these variants that are circulating, uh, to ensure that schools are safer for children when we open up. And we need to remember one of the big reports that came out during the last few weeks was that we have over a million people now in the UK living with long COVID because of this policy of living with COVID and acceptable deaths, which have largely been in young, healthy people. This is the data that we have, but I can't see any pivoting of government changing their strategy in light of the data. Um, the, the strategy is still, it's okay if we have a surge, which is inevitable. I think the government themselves said that a surge in cases is inevitable, as long as it targets young, healthy people, because they won't get sick. That's definitely not the case. And we know that from the data now. So I'm quite shocked that the government hasn't done anything to change their policy around this, despite looking at the data, which is quite concerning. I mean, on that, I have to say, I've been alarmed by the number of people, people I know, people in work and acquaintances and so on, who I message 
uh, talk about work and then they say, oh, I'm struggling at the moment because I've got long COVID and just throw it in. And that's happened now, I have to say, repeatedly. The number of people I personally know with long COVID, some for months, um, is is disturbing. I mean, Kit, what do you think in terms of the timetable uh, and the government's approach? And I suppose, you know, I mean, again, I don't know, if, is it helpful focus in? I, I bumped into a senior broadcast journalist um, in the park last week, and they said to me, if they try to reverse these restrictions, they'll like the, the people, the people of the country will riot. Effectively, is it possible to reverse these restrictions, even if? the government sought to do so. So what, what's your thoughts about the timetable, the government's general approach, and, and and is it possible to keep to it? And is it would it even be feasible to reverse them? It, it was really interesting because I think um, we at Independent Sage welcomed the, initially the, the idea of the roadmap and the rhetoric that went around it, data and not dates, which was, I think, actually stolen from Independent Sage, as it happens. But um, this is what we were calling for. We were calling for you know there to be measures where if it wasn't going well, then you would stop the opening up. And we've been we've been talking about this all the way through and saying it doesn't make sense just to have a four week lockdown in November and just say on the 2nd of December, we're going to reopen everything, because what if we're in exactly the same situation we were in before? So you know, the idea of, of focusing on the data and not the on not specific dates was was really welcome. And also the idea that it was going to be slow and we were going to take time to measure what was happening. As Deepchi's already suggested, though, there seems to be no real focus on on the data and also um, this this idea that there are no real criteria in the roadmap to suggest when you would pause the reopening. So there is one which is related to not overwhelming the NHS capacity, but there are no numbers on that. There's no specifics about how many critical care beds would have to be occupied uh, across different regions in order for us to to slow down the opening up. So I think it's true that it's going to be very difficult for the government now that they've they've put these dates and actually focused quite a lot on these dates and actually the dates are what everyone is remembering from it. That's how we always talk about the roadmap. Now they've put them in there. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for them to to slow down and reverse. And I think my my concern is that we haven't really seen the the, the effect of of the first two um openings up in tandem yet so we've seen schools for a bit we saw cases rise in school in part some of that was due to an increase in testing but when testing steadied off there was still increases in school aged children and now now we, we've gone to easter testing's fallen a little bit but cases have also fallen so it's suggestive that transmission in schools as we've been saying all along is, is really important but we've then had this Easter break and we've we've done the next stage of opening up with things being outdoors. And these, these are reasonable things to, to open up first. I think, you know, getting people meeting outdoors, if you're going to get them meeting anywhere, is sensible because the, the risk of meeting outdoors is far, far lower than meeting indoors. But we've yet to see the impact of those two things together. And then we, when we come to May the 17th, opening up and allowing lots of people to meet indoors that's when it really concerns me so i think it's going to be extremely difficult because there are no criteria in the roadmap for when you would stop opening up for the government to to stop opening up and and i'm i'm fairly confident that they won't do that even if things like cases start to rise in young people um so yeah i'm 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 worried about that i have to say I mean, on the, on the outdoors point, I'm glad you raised it because I have been slightly frustrated about all of a sudden, you know, you get these pictures of people in parks and so on or in Soho. And uh, if you actually go to these places, 
people actually are observing generally social distancing, but often the angle of the lens used by certain photographers have, gives a very, very misleading picture. And I think the reason that's frustrating, well, frustrating for obvious reasons, but especially for people in this country who live in overcrowded accommodation, particularly those with children, particularly those who don't have outdoor areas, to suddenly start shaming people for just yeah. being able to have some fresh air as things get a bit warmer seems completely counterproductive. It's pointing at the wrong targets. It's it's fueling the idea that if things go wrong, it's not the government's fault. It's it's the public messing up when actually they're just abiding by the rules they're given. Anyway, I'd be interested on that, DT, if you've got any thoughts. But also, in terms of... Um, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, that point, if, if things start going the wrong way, would it actually be feasible to reimpose any restrictions? I mean, I know at the beginning of of the pandemic, actually, if we're going to be honest, certain behavioural scientists probably have a bit to answer for because they did suggest that people would not acquiesce to restrictions for a long period of time. And that did inform the government's thinking. And they were wrong because actually the public overwhelmingly have abided by very, very, uh, you know, heavy, heavy restrictions on their lives. So, I mean, you know, is that right? What do you think? But also, I mean, the other point that keeps coming up with vaccine, the, the vaccine and the variants is, you know, is it just, is the main issue just that it's mild and moderate illness and actually the new variants w with the vaccine won't lead to hospitalizations and death and therefore does it matter as much so i'll start with the first one sorry that was a lot sorry <laughs> so in, in terms of the actual pandemic response the public has been well ahead of government so they wanted an earlier lockdown in march there was overwhelming support for it there was overwhelming support for not lifting uh, you know the lockdown in um, autumn when it was lifted uh, I know we hear a lot of reports about, you know, parties and people not complying, but that's because that's what the news focuses on. If you actually look at the research on this, compliance with um, uh, the sort of restrictions, mask use, et cetera, that have been in place has been over 90% throughout. So this whole thing we hear about pandemic fatigue and people are not willing to do this, people in Britain are freedom loving and we can't have those restrictions is completely coming from the media and the government. It's not reflected in the reality of the research that we are doing. Where there have been problems with adherence and compliance, it's been down to people wanting to do something that they could not do for financial reasons. So we know that compliance, for example, with isolation has been low. We know that many people with symptoms, so three in four people with symptoms are not currently actually seeking tests. And that's hugely problematic. But that's because the sick pay in the UK is the lowest across the OECD. And even that limited pay is very hard for people to access. Um, of course, our response to this has been to invest billions into tests that people are not seeking to take because they can't afford to isolate. So I think absolutely people will be willing to do the right thing if the public messaging is right and there is adequate support for them practically and financially. Um, the second question regarding uh, variants, yes, it is very concerning because if you look at the so-called uh, South Africa variant, there was a trial in AstraZeneca um, in South Africa which showed uh, almost no effectiveness, although there was a lot of uncertainty around it because it was quite small uh, with mild to moderate disease with AstraZeneca. And the trial was then stopped because it was unethical to continue. So we have no idea what the effectiveness would be against severe disease. Similarly, with Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, we have reduced effectiveness with uh, symptomatic disease, 
uh, efficacy with Novavax, we know with severe disease is still very, very high, which is really, really reassuring. But whether that we can extrapolate that to all vaccines is not clear at all. And even if we have good effectiveness against severe disease, if we're not preventing infection and transmission, that has important implications to you know reducing transmission at population level. So these are definitely things we need to be concerned about and take very seriously. I do want to stress, though, that currently these are not variants that are dominant in the UK, and vaccines are highly effective against the variants that are dominant in the UK. So so please take them if you're offered one. But at the same time, we can't take the fact that these variants are rising in frequency in the UK lightly. Yeah, every time I know anyone who gets a vaccine, I'm like, yes, another one. <laughs> uh, counting down the days. Yeah, I mean, what's your thoughts on any of that, Kit? And also, so I don't actually fully understand this question myself because I'm not qualified. I don't know if it's either your expertise either, but Peter Donovan asks about therapeutics, like phase three trial interferon alpha two injection reducing. <laughs> virus shedding i just i don't that's above my pay grade but anyway but on, on any if you do know anything about that let us know but otherwise generally what what are your thoughts and what do you sure. think? Uh, so i'm a humble mathematical biologist so i won't <laughs> attempt to answer that that question other than to say there is you know there is a role for uh, you know ideally we would we, we tackle the, the disease via prophylaxis via vaccinating people uh, but there is a role for medicines which reduce severity of illness as well i think um in terms of the the behavioral science thing this idea that people would undergo pandemic fatigue or, or lockdown fatigue didn't come from spy b the government's uh, you know scientific um, behavioral advice group it came from somewhere within government and it was not the best science it was not following the science this idea that people would not lock down which eventually caused us to lock down perhaps later than we should have done didn't come from the the, the spy b behavioral group um, and I think there's been, as Deepti mentioned, there's been mixed messaging throughout from the government and um, this focus on the few, the small number of people that are not complying, people who are having house parties, you know, and demonizing people for meeting outdoors. It doesn't for me, it doesn't make sense. It undermines the public's confidence. It makes people think, why should I bother complying when no one else is doing it? And actually, the, the public have done such a wonderful job of complying throughout this pandemic. As Deepti said, they've often been ahead of the curve. Uh, you know, trying to isolate themselves when the, when the lockdown came too late back in March 2020. Uh, so I think, yeah, the the, the idea that um, we should be demonising people and, and discouraging them from doing things which are safe and from meeting outdoors, you know, meeting outdoors is so much safer than meeting inside. You know, it's easy for people to go and meet inside in a private home and not get spotted, whereas if they go into a park, then it's obviously it's a public place. But it's, you know, we can't be, especially people that don't have outdoor spaces where they live people need to be to be outside and it is so much safer to meet up with people outside you know people have been working really hard there's, there's been, been this focus on the few the few cases where you know people have broken the rules but actually what's what's likely to contribute to transmission far more is people going into a covid unsafe workplaces not taking measures to prevent transmission in schools, really, really simple measures like ventilation that could be done to, to really make schools safer and, and, and to reduce the, the possibility of transmission uh, in these in these areas. So, yeah, uh, overall, you know, we're, we're talking about vaccines as a way to get out of this, but it has to come hand in hand with other sensible public health measures like making places safer to work in and like support for isolation. If we're going to ask people to isolate, and this comes back to the variant question, you know, we're, we're doing surge testing and asking people to, to self-isolate. People that can't afford to self-isolate, to stay at home, that's the reason why they will come out and, and, and not self-isolate. We need to be supporting people who have to make that difficult choice between going to work to earn money to put food on the table 
or risking infecting their colleagues when they go to work. We need to be supporting people to self-isolate because people are not breaking self-isolation because they're taking the mic. They're doing it because they have to go to work to earn money. And that's one huge thing the government could be doing to really help reduce both the, the chance of, of cases spreading, but also of, of variants as well. Deepsea, finally, um, just a couple of final things, really. I mean, first is this, in, in science, uncertainty is baked in as a very core fundamental. And people often don't understand what that means outside of scientific circles. Um, uh, I mean, do you think the problem has been, therefore, people just interpret the government have a, a, all the way through pushed the idea that, you know, uncertainty means they can rely on a best case scenario, which then doesn't transpire. And the second point is, have they kind of got away with this? I mean, you know, we, people like yourselves have been, you know, holding the government to account, uh, in, you know, in, a, in an extremely powerful way for the last year or so. Uh, the locking down too late, reopening prematurely, the, the test and trace handed to private sector cowboys who failed dismally uh the the you know the failures as kit talks about on you know economic security one of the lowest statutory sick pays in the western world the lack of uh financial security for people to be able to afford to uh to self-isolate the failure with schools the failure with universities the failure with making workplaces covid safe and yet you know we ended up you know nearly one in 500 people dying of covid in this country uh, one of the worst death tolls and death rates on earth, terrible economic consequence, social devastation. But because of the, thank God, success of the vaccination program, people are just going to think, well, let bygones be bygones. Uh, you know, Labour haven't pinned this on them. And that's led people to think, well, Labour wouldn't have done any better. I wouldn't want to be in the government's shoes. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, what do you, so on both those things, the uncertainty issue, but also just to be depressing, have they just got away with this really? So starting with the uncertainty issue, I think it's a really important one. And the way we deal with uncertainty, we've dealt with in the US and the UK and Europe has been very different from how it's been dealt with in Southeast Asia. So if you think about the basic measures to contain the pandemic, uh, we didn't know need to know very much about the virus. And we didn't need to know what we know now to put in an effective response. We saw many countries eliminate the virus and put in effective responses without knowing this. And what they did was they took the uncertainty and didn't assume the best. They essentially decided it's not worth the risk. Let's just take simple measures that can contain this and treat this as a big problem and manage it aggressively. Our government at every single stage uh, the policy was hope for the best. It was blind optimism right from the beginning. So aerosol transmission, probably not happening. Don't need masks. Don't need test rates nicely. This virus probably won't mutate, but it did. If it mutates, it won't be more uh, transmissible or more fatal. It did. Um, we, you know, we don't need to contain variants coming into the country because... Um, we can manage it once they come in. We couldn't. These variants probably won't evade vaccine responses. They did. And we're still following this policy of blind optimism. And the reason I say that is because vaccines are still our sole strategy. We're still not treating these variants of concern as if each of them could be a major risk or a gamble for us. It might work out, work out for us, but so far this policy hasn't. And I think we really need to look at how we look at uncertainty because the best way to deal with uncertainty when the risks are so high is to minimize uncertainty. And the best way to do that is to reduce transmission and prevent virus adaptation, have those uh, sort of uh, restrictions and borders to prevent these variants coming in. We can do those things with very simple measures. So I don't know why we are happy to take these risks, uh, hoping that the best scenario will materialize, which may not. 
Um, and the second thing about has the government gotten away with it? I mean, I think about this all the time. I can't imagine um, that we've lost 150,000, over 150,000 lives. We have over a million people living with long COVID entirely due to a failure to put in the right policies in place. These were preventable deaths and these were preventable uh, chronic diseases. Um, why has this been allowed to happen? I think a lot of it is the media and the government sort of promoting this. I, I've seen a lot of rise in nationalism over the UK over the past few years, which I think has been uh, amplified with the sort of vaccine nationalism that we have now. And, you know, the fact that we've had this more rapid rollout of vaccines and comparisons with Europe and how we're doing better has sort of stoked this idea that somehow, you know, we've done this really well, despite the huge numbers of failures that are still continuing. Um, and I think the media holds a huge amount of responsibility for what's happened, because I think a lot of independent investigative journalism is not really happening and it's happening in silos here and there but not receiving much of attention in the public and neither is what's happening over the world our media is extremely uk focused and you know people in southeast asia and other parts of the world are looking and australia are looking at us and thinking why are they still having debates about mask use and what's going on there and they see the failures for what they are which is something we don't often see because our media doesn't portray it and finally, yeah, what what are your thoughts on that, Kit? I mean, I do sometimes I wonder if part of the problem has been over three decades now, this idea shoved down the throats of the British public that, you know, social injustices are not collective failings, they're to do with individual behavioural problems. I mean, that's from the late 70s onwards, that's how poverty and unemployment were reduced. You know, it wasn't, these aren't systemic problems to do with how societies run, they're due to people's own individual failures. And that's kind of been applied to COVID-19 and this pandemic. It was people just, it wasn't the government's fault, it was people not breaking the rules. It's almost like this same, it's the same approach used to, uh, to the welfare state to justify cuts to the welfare state, scroungers who are playing the, playing the system who everyone should focus on rather than the government. Anyway, what are your general final thoughts in terms of the government just kind of getting away with it? Yeah, I think the one thing is that the government have done a very good job on rolling out, or, or the NHS have done a very good job at rolling out this vaccine. Vaccine procurement has been uh, has, has meant that we will you know, vaccinate a large proportion of our population before everyone else. But unfortunately, that's the thing that everyone re will remember about this, I worry, because people will forget about the enormous death toll that we've had. We'll forget about all the mismanagement uh, through on because we'll get our lives back to normal in some senses, perhaps before some other countries will. For, for me, if you're not absolutely furious about this huge death toll that we have in the UK, you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on for the last year. And the really frustrating thing for me is the disingenuity, if that's even a word, of, of Boris Johnson when he came out and he said, we did everything we could to minimise the loss of life when we passed this 100,000 death toll a few months ago. And to me, that is an insult to the families of people who've lost loved ones to COVID because, you know what, delaying lockdown for six weeks back in the autumn wasn't doing everything we could, knowing that there was this new variant B117 that was transmitting in the UK from the 18th of December and still waiting till the 4th of January to lockdown wasn't doing everything that they could. Sending kids back to school for a single day, I mean, honestly, was that doing everything they could? Undermining public trust through messaging, through gaslighting the public with Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle, 
the failing test trace and isolate system that's you know billions of pounds have been put into which is actually lots largely been diverted to private companies um you know saying that we were going to cast a protective ring around care homes and then sending patients home from hospital without a negative covid test and we're seeing it again now with borders you know not taking every effort we can do to to stop new variants coming into the country you know we're at a fortunate position where the reproduction number at the moment is less than one still and so that means that naturally new cases should die out but actually we're seeing with these variants that they are increasing in number and as we start to, uh, you know, increase uh, the, the amount of freedom we have to reduce restrictions, then we're going to get to a point where R does rise above one, cases do start to grow, and these new variants are going to potentially gain a foothold. So for me, I absolutely worry that people are just going to completely forget about the complete mismanaging of this public health disaster over the last year, and all that they will remember is the fact that we maybe got out of this a few months before other countries did. Can I just add one thing to what you said? So one of the things that I often see on media and I'm asked to do is essentially make comparisons between the UK and Europe, saying we are doing so much better in terms of vaccine rollout. Europe is now seeing a surge in cases, completely forgetting that the current surge that's happening in Europe is entirely a result of the UK not getting on top of the new variant here when it was supposed to, allowing it to first of all, develop and then spread across the world. Even at that time, many of us were warning, saying that if this variant is not brought under control in the UK and is exported to other parts of the world, it's going to change the shape of the pandemic across the world. And it did. And what's happening in Europe is very much an impact of the failure of UK government policy. But the comparisons now that are made are that it's failures of UK, uh, of European policy that has led to this particular surge, and they're doing badly, completely ignoring what led to all of this. Amen. Thank you so much to uh, DT and Kit. That was absolutely phenomenal. And the comments uh, have been, uh, demonstrate just, just, just how brilliant people thought that discussion was and how educational it was. I found it very educational indeed. And very very useful to have a kind of masterclass in where things are currently at based on the actual information so thank you so much to both of you and um, really pretty especially at such short notice asking people to come on the show at such short notice we're always very lucky to have such brilliant guests and uh for everyone watching or listening do follow both of them on social media uh where they post their brilliant work uh it's a great way of keeping up to speed rather than relying on certain media outlets, which don't necessarily give the most accurate picture. So do follow them both and get that information uh, firsthand. Thank you so much to both of you. And I hope you enjoy some of the sun uh, and, uh, and, yeah. and get some time to relax. You certainly deserve it. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. You too. Thank you. Um, they were absolutely brilliant as expected. It's, as I say, we're very lucky to have such, such high quality uh, guests and experts on the show to tell us exactly what, what really is happening without sensationalism, just the raw basic facts of what's going on. And I think that point about, will they get away with it? Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking to think that, you know, up to 150,000 people can die uh, completely avoidably. Uh, far more than than so many other countries on 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 the face of the earth. Far far more than than some. I mean, we've had daily death. We've had daily death tolls, which are the same as the entire death toll of an entire country. Uh, the fact they could get away with that, and it is, I'm afraid, to do with in large part our media ecosystem. 
a media which all too often uh, decides to, instead of speaking truth to power, speaks power to truth. Uh, you know, I just think about this today in terms of the Greensill scandal, which we covered last week. Um, and there's a massive mail on Sunday splash today, which is attempting to root out supposed moles in the civil service who are acting against the government by leaking information. Just kind of think what I mean, I mean, it's comedy journalism to one extent. It's like the idea of newspapers suddenly condemning anonymous sources is and, and trying to root them out and humiliate and demonize them is, is one thing. But again, and I do often bring this up, you know, I went to Hungary a few years ago and Hungary is a country, a European Union member state in which the outward appearance of democracy is maintained, but the substance is hollowed out. You know, yeah, they have elections, they have political parties, but you have, you know, a media ecosystem which sees part of its job largely as basically aggressively hounding the opponents of the government. And I'm afraid we have seen throughout COVID-19 a government which has presided over, you know, a catastrophic failure to preserve the life of its own people. And if there was one function, and you don't have to be on the left or right or whatever, you know, to agree with this, I think we can all agree the most basic function of any government is to protect the lives of its own people. Like, there are other jobs it needs to do, but that's certainly the start starting point, the most basic function. And the fact that I'm afraid much of the media has actively actively conspired to deflect responsibility from the British government for one of the most, for a, for a handling that was worse than Donald Trump in the United States and is only superseded by, you know, by, by countries where we would agree, you know, the media, there would be a consensus that these governments of course have failed and what a terrible failure it is. Able to point out how terrible the situation is in Brazil which still doesn't, by the way, have the same, have a death rate as bad as our own, incidentally. So you'll have all these splashes. Look how terrible it is in Brazil. Still not the same death rate as, as we've managed in this country. And yet the media has failed to hold them to account. And the Labour Party, too, has to share responsibility because by failing to have a clear narrative about how we ended up, we heard Kit at the end of that, uh, so superbly and succinctly, just summing up disaster after disaster. They failed to do that. And as a consequence, a lot of the British public have concluded that nobody else could have done any better. And, the go and, and they're thankful, understandably, about the vaccine rollout and the government will get away with it. It is astonishing and frightening and disturbing. And we shouldn't be resigned to it. And we should keep holding the government to account for the biggest peacetime catastrophe of modern times in this country. Uh, far more people have died than died in the Blitz in a very short space of time. And it didn't need to happen. And we should never think it did. Uh, just finally to wrap up, thanks to Peter O'Donovan for uh, his support and question. Thank you so much for everyone who watched live. If you're watching live, do like the video because that encourages other people to watch the video as well. Uh, press subscribe and the notification bell. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, do give us five stars if you're so well inclined and a review. Uh, thanks for the support on patreon.com. Um, that really helps us obviously get the team doing their brilliant work. We're using that financial support you give us, for example, to go up to Hartlepool to do a, a really in-depth video about what's happening in on the ground in advance of the by-election. And 
I think, you know, it's not just going to be about what's happening in terms of who's going to win. It, it's looking at actually what ha- has happened to communities like that of Hartlepool, um, which have been long abandoned by central government, including the Conservative government, but the Tories are in with a shout there. What's going on there? What's going on with the generational divide, economic decline, the nature of work? We're going to look at a lot. So thank you for your support for doing that. We really, really appreciate it. Um, we've got lots of interviews coming up, a very wide range of interviews coming up and other uh, programmes. So do subscribe. Uh, spread the word. And I hope you get to enjoy some of this relatively nice weather. Do wrap up warm at night, as I've discovered uh, to my own cost. It does get cold at the moment. But um, fingers crossed, we will in time, despite our government, escape from this terrible nightmare. All right, everybody, take care and I will speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.